morning, the amount of work that goes into a church. And I'm just so grateful for the people who take their part. Uh, did you notice the footings are being put in for the sign out there? And, and I was thinking about the worship team gathering together and practicing. Uh, the, the Sunday morning service is often kind of at the point. And there's a lot of work. Dawn spent time putting the slides together with the announcements. There's a lot of practical things that happen to make it work. And I want to say thank you. Uh, also, in relation to that, the leadership team is meeting weekly right now, the men of the leadership team. And we very seriously are taking the idea that we should, we want to move forward. And in order to move forward, we need to build some things in place. And so as we build those and prepare those, we'll be bringing them to you to look at and uh, going forward. So it's been a good thing. We do more than drink coffee. We actually get a few things done. Um, so the themes in Ezra and Nehemiah that we've been talking about, and by the way, for those of you who haven't been here, and for those of you who have, let me just remind you that Ezra and Nehemiah in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures are separated by simply a space. They are considered one book in the Hebrew Scriptures, and, and there is a natural flow that goes. Uh, they're, they're dealing with three returns of God's people. The first one under Zerubbabel, and uh, they then the one that we're in right now, the one under Ezra, and then Nehemiah returns. And the, the biggest gap of time is between uh, chapter 6 and 7, and the book of Esther actually fits into that area, uh, into that time when you read it chronologically. So, but we're, we're, we're at a kind of a unique place today in, in, the, in, the, in the passage, They've built a temple. They have a temple in place. Remember, last Sunday, Dave talked about this, and this is important, actually. When, they, when Ezra came back, Ezra led the return back. Uh, I, I noticed a couple things that Dave highlighted, and I don't know if you were here or not, but Ezra says, the good hand of God was upon me. Those are powerful words. The good hand of God was upon me. He's understanding something about the nature of God. He's also understanding something about his own motivations. God is moving me. And, and, and it, it leads us to the themes that we've been talking about of God's power, God's sovereignty, God knows, and God's mercy. And, and then and he, he needs to find some Levites to come along back because he wants to do temple worship right. And the king, uh, this is amazing to me, these foreign kings write these letters and say, go back and do this, and, and here's, some, here's money and, and everything to do it. So Ezra comes back, and they hold a, a temple service, and that's where we're, uh, we're at in chapter 9. Now, I'm going to read the first part of chapter 9 for now, and then we'll, we'll kind of go from there. Ezra 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For ta- they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. As soon as I heard this, This is Ezra writing in first person. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garments and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. 
Then all who trembled at the words of the, God, of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garments and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees, and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant, to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God... What shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the land, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the people who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shekinah, the son of Jael, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women, from the people of the lands. But even now, there is a hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandments of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra, Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Johanan, the son of Elisha, Elisheb, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem and to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders of all his pro by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. 
Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourself from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who take foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Aziel, and Jezza, the son of Tikva, opposed this, and Mishulam and Shabathia, the Levites, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' house, houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat to, down to examine the matter, and by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. It's a really unique portion of Scripture. Uh, I'm not going to... He goes then and lists uh, the families and, and the people who had, who had done this, and a few of them who were unwilling to make the changes. Now, we can look at a portion of Scripture like this, and we can say, well, yeah, that was uh, good and interesting for them, but what does it mean for us? And, and I don't want to go there right away. I don't, think the, I don't think the answer to Scripture is to, what does this mean for us? I think first we have to set some tone for what is happening. And we also need to under, understand that God is timeless. So the things that the children of Israel experienced, the people of God experienced in that world, are the same things we experience today. And the lessons that they learn in those moments, they may, they may be different issues and, and something different, but the same God who was alive then is alive today and is our God. And, and understand that, that God, when he talks about the children of Israel in the Old Testament, Paul is quite clear that that is extended and embraced and it means the people of God today. And so when we are talking about the people of God, we are talking not about the nation of Israel or the Jews and Judaism today. We are talking about us. And, and so... As I see this passage, you can break it down into three pieces. First of all, there is an issue. And then you have the people's response, and then the result of that response. So the issue, the response, and the result. And, and as we think about the, the time of year we're in, approaching communion, and, and, and those moments, we often take some time for reflection during this time. And I want us to maybe do a bit of that this morning, although that's not why we have this portion of Scripture. And, and I think that, that we have lost sight sometimes of what it means to corporately confess our sins and to, and to honestly say we are a broken people and we need God's help. I mean, Ezra is quite the person here. You notice what he does. He's like, he hears this and, and he hears about the issue and the first thing he does 
is he rips his jacket open. I thought about wearing an old jacket this morning, but I, I, Narita is gone for the weekend, and I needed her permission to tear my jacket. Um, I thought about doing that, and, uh, but I really did. I have a little bit of headache. I didn't want to tear my hair. Well, what hair, huh? On my beard, I trimmed. So I, you know, so, but get the moment. Get this moment. Enter into this moment kind of. Ezra hears about this. And, he, and, and the people bring this, the word to him. We'll talk about the issue in a minute, what it is. They bring the word of the issue to him, and he's, he's like, there's this kind of transformative moment where Ezra goes, just, he reacts. And the, the reaction that Ezra makes comes out of a result of his understanding of who he is in relation to God. Notice how the first part of this, uh, his prayer, and the first part of what he references here is personal. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush. And then in verse 10 he changes and says, and now, oh our God, where he brings them into it. The first thing he does is like, oh my God, what have we done? And it's not the expletive that we hear today. It is a serious crying out to God saying, what have we done? I am appalled. And now, now so, so I, I think that in, in our world today, we have been taught that the Christian life is about your individual relationship with God. And it certainly is that. But there is also a sense where when we bring our individual lives together in a church with a group of believers that we meet with regularly, when we do that, we together have something that is much bigger than ourselves. And when there is sin, the sin is much bigger than ourselves. I happen to think that these kinds of moments should be happening among God's people today yet. Now, the issue. The issue is these mixed marriages. And we could get into all kinds of arguments about divorce and remarriage and, and, uh, and, and those kinds of things. We could get into those arguments. I'm not going to. We, we can talk about that at a different time. But did you notice how Ezra describes, when he describes what the people's sin was, he says they are, they, they are filled with faithlessness. Did you notice that word? Faithlessness. It's, not a, it's hard for us to say. But the word, when it's translated from the Hebrew, the word can mean treachery or treason. It's the people's treason. Now, what, when somebody's treasonous, what does that mean? Well, uh, here's a... What does that mean? Treason. What's the crime of treason? Well, the best way to describe it is this, is to tell a story. And during the Revolutionary War, the, uh, the colonials, who were, by the way, the rebels, the uh, colonials, the, the 13 colonies rebelled against the British government. One of their generals was a young man, he was young, named Benedict Arnold. And Benedict Arnold was a fabulous logistical leader. He and, the Green, he and uh, Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys fought their way north and took some British cannons that Henry Knox, then big fat man Henry Knox, could barely ride a horse, he was so fat. He, Henry Knox was an artillery engineer who then moved them down and they used them, but Benedict Arnold was kind of instrumental in that surprise attack in Vermont and so on. Well, Benedict Arnold began to think that he's on the losing side. And he had some contact with the British government, and he switched sides. And he became known as a... 
there was a price put on his head, if the colonial army would have caught him, they would have killed him. Because he was faithlessness. He was full of faithlessness. He was treasonous. That's the best way I know how to describe treason. It, it is when we switch sides. Uh, it, it means to break faith. And, and so uh, probably one of the best words, uh, the best ways I, uh, the scripture, uh, there's another place where this is said in First Chronicles when it talks about Saul, King Saul, when he died. When it says when King Saul died, so Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and he also consulted a witch seeking God. And so, when we break faith, we're doing that. So, um, and, and so that is the issue. And the issue, probably, I read in Malachi, and I, in Malachi 2 there's a portion. It is, it is not likely that these were their, these people's first marriage. Let me just say one thing about the marriages. In all likelihood, these people had originally been married to Jewish women and had left their Jewish wives and married foreign women because they seemed more appealing. And so all God is asking them to do is return to their first wife. Malachi, the prophet Malachi, who prophesies about this time, is uh, now. Now I want to ask us a question today. How do we break faith? At what moments in our history, at what moments in our Christianity, in what moments in our church, in what moments in our personal lives do we break faith? And I think that's a legitimate question for us to consider. Like, do we live with the awareness that God is in control? How do we marry foreign wives? And I'm not going to tell you uh, what that might look like. I think we need to wrestle with that ourselves. But we need to be aware that it is easy for us to not to not see God as our provider for everything. And so what we do then is we run to other things to fill that space. Lust, greed, gossip and slander, and those kinds of things, the sins that the Bible mentions, are often attempts to build us up in our own eyes, in the eyes of the people around us, in such a way that we look better than we are. Or to fill a space within us that we think needs filling or that this will fill. And I can guarantee you one thing. Nothing will fill that space except God. And when we go after those things and we follow those things, we are breaking faith. Now, the, so, so the first thing you note is the issue. The issue was not necessarily, it is the marriages, but it's breaking faith. The second thing I note is the... Is, uh, is the response. And the response is confession and repentance. This is a beautiful... Ezra goes right to the heart of it and says, God, we have done this. And there is nothing more powerful than people who are willing to say, I have sinned. I need help. We have believed a lie that when we ask, when we admit our failures and admit our brokenness, we have believed a lie that people are going to look at us and say, well, 
Really? Hmm. Huh. And there is nothing more powerful than just saying, I need help. And there is nothing more powerful than us as a group saying, we need help. Because when we say that, it opens up God's sovereignty, God's power, God's mercy right down into our lives in ways that we have never experienced before. I often think that, that, that confession and repentance are kind of bad words in our circles. And maybe we've reacted to the Catholics. I actually happen to think that we should have confession on a regular basis and that there should be a little box up here. Uh, that room could suffice and we'll put a grill in through the door and, and one of us will sit behind the door and every Saturday afternoon from 2 to 4 you come along here and I'll sit, I'll start, I'll sit behind the door and you tell me everything you did wrong that week. Uh-huh. What do you think? Okay, and and you can say, uh, and and you can even talk to God while I'm listening. You can say, Lord, I slammed the door in my wife's face today, this week, and I got really mad at my kids when they did that. And Lord, I was driving down the road, and and some guy cut me off, and I I honked the horn so loud, and the first thing I want to do was give him the finger. You can say all those things, and I can. Okay, the point is, we don't do that. But why should we not? Why? There is something that is freeing when we're honest about the condition of our soul. Now, but if you only say something about it, and you never repent, and repentance does not mean confession. There is a difference, but they always go hand in hand. You cannot repent without confessing. And you cannot confess, truly confess, without repenting. Repenting is the action that follows where we turn away from that, where the next time we have that space. And this, there is something really powerful in this, that when we confess, for instance, if I confess something like anger, and the next time I'm faced with that moment, I remember my confession. And I have a choice. And the choice becomes more stark and more clear every time I confess. Doesn't mean I'll be perfect from here on out, but it means that I'm going to turn and go another way. So, so the issue was their faithlessness. The, the response was confession and repentance. And then the result of that is that they moved away from their previous action. And I'm going to invite all of us to think about this in response to the, the calling of God on our lives. That w- there are moments that we all of us face where we become aware of the brokenness within inside us. And sometimes it takes a lot of time to process. One of the, uh, the best things that ever happened in my life, I once went to one of my friends and made a confession for something rather significant. I, I was wrestling with this stuff, and I was wrestling with this stuff, and, <clears throat> and I, 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 was just, I, I just kept kind of repeating the cycle of sin. Do you know what that's about? You do, you do know what that's about. Okay, so I was just kind of repeating the cycle all the time. And I finally, I decided I need help. And I, I confessed it to God. And then I went to one of my friends, somebody who I knew cared for my soul. And I confessed it to him. And I, I said, I, am, I want to get up on Sunday morning and confess it in front of the church. And he said, no. I don't think you should. And I said, huh. You know, I kind of sat back. I thought, why did I tell him? But then he said, I think that, the, that if you want to really stop doing what you're doing, I, I, why don't you and I just sit with this for a few months? 
And so every week, for the next three months, we would meet together. And he'd say, how was this week? And at the end of the three months, he said, I think you're ready to tell the church now. And I got up and made it. It was not a big deal, that big of a deal. Well, it was, but it was different. It was quite different because I suddenly had experienced a cycle of God's power in my life. That's what we need. That's what we need. And I want to particularly speak to to each um, part of our church. If, if we want to really build something here at Providence where we have productive, uh, purposeful men, for us men, I think that there is something really powerful at being men. Uh, we, we think about purposeful men. We think about men with strength and power. We think they, they're macho and they have it all together. Actually, the best picture of a purposeful man is Ezra right here when he tears his coat and he gets down on his knees in front of the people and he says, God, God, what have we done? Oh, no. We, you mean we've been living like this? What do you think those little boys in that audience thought about a man who is strong enough to do that? How do you think that the people... You suddenly have this wholesale following of Ezra. And Ezra is able to lead the people. I'm telling you, men, that if you really want to be purposeful men... You have to be men who, when you feel the issues of life confront you, you are willing to confess and repent them. And the second thing we want here is empowered women. The world has taught us that empowered women are strong feminists out there lifting up the cause of women. I can say this because my wife isn't here this morning, right? She was actually, she spoke four times yesterday at a women's retreat in, in Oklahoma. She's flying back today. But she agrees with me on this. That is not a good picture of women. Empowered women are women who, when they are faced with the issues of life, and they they face their own sinfulness and their own brokenness, and they confess and repent. And that gives them a power that they never had before because they can move in strength. Let me tell you something. Confession and repentance, the result of that is power. It's power for a church. And and then I think we need to, to think about engaged youth. Like, if we really want to engage our youth, we lead them, and we teach them, and we show them, as adults, how confession and repentance looks like. And when we do that, it makes them want to enter in, because they're experiencing these same kind of feelings in their life. And so, but, but I also think we need to broaden and say, what is, what is it in our, what is, what is about Anabaptists? What is about Mennonites? And, and we can say, well, we're not really Mennonites, we're truly followers of Jesus. Yeah, thank you. I am too. But we are. We live in central Holmes County. We go to Church in Charm, and, and we're a group of either Mennonites or ex-Mennonites or whatever we are, whatever we are. But we, we bring the dynamics of this area, this group, and there are some corporate sins that go with these areas. And those sins are, are often seen in the way we relate to each other. And it's easy for us to think that we've kind of found a perfect place. You know, we're just right. We can wear tight jeans to church with a suit jacket and it looks real good. Or I can wear a tie or, or whatever else. I wore those on purpose so I could say that this morning. Okay? We think we found the perfect place. We think, you know, oh, the, the Amish on this side, uh, they're just so restrictive on here. On the other side, we have the liberals and we don't really want to go that route. And it, it breeds this kind of spiritual arrogance. And it robs us of power. And so what I think that we need to do is say, God, thank you that we are not the church. Where the whole truth and all the truth and perfect application is found. But rather, Jesus, deliver us from our arrogance and our pridefulness. 
And help us to be people who are open and inviting. What is it that will lead us forward? It's confession and repentance. It's what the led... You know, it also reflects itself. I was going to talk about separation. I'll talk about that in Nehemiah because he said, separate yourselves from your wives. Separation is a bad word in our circles because we've always had it to be uh, seen in clothing. Separation is not about what you dress like or what kind of cars you drive or if you drive a car or not. That is not what separation from the world is. Separation from the world is thinking differently than the world. It's what we're actually being separated to rather than what we're separated from. And we are separated to the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is one where power is found in confession and repentance. And so as we think about communion, as we think about the journey of Jesus as he went to the cross, as we think about all these things in the next several weeks, let's also think about our own lives. And I think that as a church... We need to be careful that we don't, we don't give the idea that we're, we've kind of found the perfect spot. But that we're, we're a part of the ecology of God's kingdom. We're a small stream that flows into the river of Christianity. And yes, we have a wonderful contribution to make. And a wonderful thing to offer. But at the same point, there are plenty of other places that offer good too. And when we do that, we suddenly are free to say, oh, I have found the power of Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team up. Again, they don't know this. But I'm going to, well, Tim does. Come on up. And uh, could you put the words, Mike, to, to the river? I was really struck by that song. We'll close with that. So when we think about the issues of our day, the issue of our day, the way that Satan is trying to bring down his church is for us to become treasonous, to leave the kingdom of God, to join the other side. And when we do that, we break faith. The way to respond to that is to confess our sins and to repent. And the result will be a life of purpose, power, and engagement. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have called us to the river. And at that place, it's figurative, and it's, it's also real in the time of, of Israel, but you've called us to this place where you invite us to bear our souls to you, where you invite us to bring our entire being. We are so taught, Jesus, to make it look good on the surface. And I pray that as we think about our lives, that we bring the pieces, all the pieces together, and we bring them to you, and we confess our brokenness. And we change And we move away from that brokenness. And we discover that confession actually empowers repentance. And what that empowers is a life of giving and freedom 
and strength. As we sing this closing song, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may stand. Thank you, Marcus. Uh, I was struck. I was struck by what he shared today. There's a lot there to think about and to digest. So thank you, Marcus. Um, and let's sing this song as our as our closing prayer. Uh, and note note the words in the chorus: "Precious Jesus, I am ready to surrender every care." That about sums it up. Let's sing. To the rear.